uh, while I pray, and then we're going to jump into this passage. So, Father, thank you so much for, uh, thank you for this time that we've had so far, where we've looked up to worship you, and um, we've looked down to see our own brokenness and brought that before you. And, Father, we thank you that through Jesus Christ, you lift us up, and we pray you continue to do that as we look at your word now. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Emmy and I, we've been in L.A. for almost six months now. Um, in a couple of weeks, that will be our six-month lived-in-L.A. anniversary. Um, there's this, like, thing that if you see these seven things, you know you're a resident. I think we've hit all of them. Uh, one of them is a, a palm tree on fire. I saw one being put out. So I, I didn't see it on fire, but I saw the fire department putting it out. So I'm counting that. So I guess that's it. This is where we are now. This is where we live. Um, it's all there. So... Um, <clears throat> So almost six months now. I guess in COVID years, that's like almost 60 years. So, you know, it feels like we really have been here a long time. But as, as we were telling people that we we're moving here to help start this church, some of our Christian friends would say things to us like, uh, wow, that's really noble, very good of you to go there. Like, it's such a hard place and no one is really a Christian there interested in Christianity. So, you know, good for you. I'm so glad that you're going to do that. Someone should do that. Right? That's what our Christian friends would tell us. Um, and our non-Christian friends would uh, say very similar things. Uh, they would sing, say things like, uh, hey, there's not much of a market for that whole Christian thing there, so are you sure you want to do that? Uh, that was their view of like going to L.A., that there wouldn't be a whole lot of Christians. Now, they're both saying the same thing, that there's not many Christians here and almost no one here who's interested in becoming a Christian. Now, I don't know if that's true or not, but that's their perception. And what they're pointing to, though, is that in this city... We're now living at the front end of an era that sociologists call a post-Christian era. So we're now living post-after Christianity. Just to give you a little bit of perspective of this new era that we're stepping into, um, and in this city probably with both feet, uh, the Christian era started 1,700 years ago when the Roman Emperor Constantine became a Christian, and at the Council of Nicaea, uh, basically said, here's Christian doctrine, and everyone in the Roman Empire is going to follow this. And so then for the next 1,700 years, we were living in the West in the Christian era. That has now come to an end. That's, that's how, uh, how big this shift is in our culture. And that's where we live. We live right on the front edge of that. Um, and so I guess in some ways our friends are right. There's not many Christians and almost no one interested in becoming a Christian. Um, but here's the really interesting thing that sociologists have been pointing out about post-Christian culture. Here's the thing. We both want the same things. So people that uh, are Christians, that are still holding to the Christian truth that Constantine and those who are at the Council of Nicaea put out, which we do hold to as a church, uh, we want the same things that someone who is totally post-Christian, who's left Christianity in the movement, we actually want the same outcome. Um, and so if you pay attention to what your friends are clamoring for across social media, listen to what our cultural heroes are saying on their talk shows and in their books. If you look intently into the themes of every major film and television show, you'll hear a desire for reason, for liberty, for truth, for peace, for faith, for brotherhood, for equality, justice, mercy, goodness. It's all in there. You'll hear that over and over again. And these are the same, very same values that flowed into the world through the Christian faith for almost 2000 years. And in fact, go back 100 years, actually go back 60 years to the civil rights movement, and you'll see that no one thought that we could achieve the virtues that we needed to flourish as a, as a society without God pouring them into our lives as individuals and as a society. Just go back 60 years, 
and listen to what was being said about how we could achieve justice and mercy. It was based on the image of God. But here's what a post-Christian culture says. It says, I want those virtues. I want all of that. I want that whole list. I want a purpose in life, but I'm going to construct that without God. So I can have all those things, but I don't need God. That's what a post-Christian culture is saying. Here's how a cultural commentator named Mark Sayers puts it. He says, post-Christianity attempts to move beyond Christianity whilst simultaneously feasting upon its fruit. Post-Christianity intuitively yearns for the justice and shalom of the Christian kingdom whilst defending the reign of the individual will. Post-Christianity is Christianity emptied of its content. And that's the world we live in. One that wants all that Christianity can give you, but, but drains away all the content of how we might get that. And as we get started as a church, it poses an incredibly important question for us. And the question is this, what kind of church will we be? Living in that kind of context, what kind of church will we be? Will we be the kind of church that operates uh, sort of like a fortress in, in, in the middle of uh, enemy territory? You just keep quiet, keep to ourselves, do our thing, and hope that no one notices. Is that the kind of church that we'll be? Or will we be the kind of church that goes on the attack? Find all the things that we disagree with in our society and make it known just how much we disagree. So we'll go out and we'll tell everyone what we hate about the world. Is that the kind of church that we're going to be? Or will we do our best to make ourselves look as much like the culture as we can, right? Just try and fit in. Probably means changing some of our beliefs, but at least no one from the outside can judge us because of, well, you know, the cool sweatshirts and sneakers, right? We'll just look like everyone else in Hollywood. I'm not sure we want to be any of those churches because none none of those churches are very balanced. A balanced church is one that both challenges the culture with biblical teaching and doctrine and yet adapts to the culture in order to communicate the truths of the gospel in a way that that culture can receive it. That's a balanced church. So it both challenges but also adapts to the culture. Like the first one, that fortress one, it neither confronts the culture nor adapts to it. So that one's probably not going to last very long. The second one, the attacking church, it only confronts, it doesn't adapt. And so it's not very loving and therefore not very inviting. So there probably won't be very many people. That one probably won't last very long either. The, ch- the third church, we'll call this the hip church. It only adapts, but it doesn't confront. And so everyone wants to go, but no one's life is really transformed. And the city doesn't really benefit from that group of people being together. But there is a fourth way, and that's the kind of church I think we want to be, the kind of church that both holds firmly to the authority of the Bible in our lives and to the historic doctrines of the Christian faith. You see, in this way, the church will challenge the culture that we live in that's rejecting Christianity, right? So if we hold to historic biblical teaching, we'll end up challenging the culture. Yet at the very same time, we can actually affirm the longings of those within the culture for a society of reason and liberty and peace and truth and faith and brotherhood and equality and justice and mercy and goodness. And so this fourth kind of church, that's the kind you read about in the New Testament. And so to be that kind of church, we need to ask, is there something that our culture, that our city wants as badly as we do? Is there something out there in the culture that they want as badly as we do as Christians? Well, what we've been saying is our culture wants more than anything is things like reason and liberty and truth and faith and brotherhood and justice and goodness. And the culture wants those things because somewhere along the way, we've perceived that we've lost them. 
Every day it seems we're a society less and less of reason and peace and faith and equality and goodness. And if we were to sum up that list of things that our culture wants, we could sum it up with one word. What, what does the culture want? The culture wants renewal. It wants to emerge as something new than what it is right now. It wants renewal. And so what do we want? We're going to take all the things that we don't like about ourselves as individuals, all the things that we don't like about our society as a whole, and we want to cast them off and become something new. That's renewal. That's what our culture is clamoring for. And as a Christian, I actually have, I have zero problem affirming that desire. Zero problem affirming that desire. That's the very same thing that I want as a Christian. In fact, the Bible talks about renewal all the time. In fact, later on in the book of Ephesians, uh, which is what we're looking at today, you'll read this in chapter 4. It says, You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Right? Isn't, isn't that, that's what Christians should want. Isn't that what the culture wants? To put off the old degrading way of living and to put on a new one? And so we want the same thing. We want the same end. So is there something that our culture wants as badly as we do? Yeah, it's, it's to be made new. It's renewal. And here's what the historic Christian gospel holds out as true, holds out for every single one of us. Here it is. Renewal is possible for everyone. Christianity holds out that truth, that renewal is possible for everyone. doesn't matter who you are. doesn't matter where you came from. doesn't matter what you've done, how much money you have, what degrees you have, if you're married, if you're single, if you're divorced, if you're gay, uh, if you're straight, if you're young, if you're old, if you're middle-aged. Renewal is possible for everyone. Every single person. That's what the Bible holds out. And so because of that, we can affirm that longing. And yet, as Christians, we think the source of renewal is in a different place. And so we can challenge that longing. Our culture thinks we find renewal either by looking in, finding it deep inside ourselves, or it says you can find renewal by looking around, finding a cause to attach yourself to. But Christianity confronts both of those views and says you don't ultimately find renewal by looking inside. And you don't find it by looking around to connect to a cause. Christianity says that you experience renewal by looking up to the God who created you. That renewal comes from the outside in. And so for the next couple of months, we're going to dig into the topic of renewal by reading and studying the New Testament book of Ephesians. So we're going to go through it kind of slow, but kind of fast. I promise you next week, and you're like, could you slow down? There's so much in here. Um, so we're going to go through it kind of slow, but kind of fast. And so if you're here and you're not a Christian, well, here it is. Stick with us because we're going to be talking about how Christianity just might offer you the renewal that you're so desperately longing for. And if you are a Christian and maybe you have a friend who seems to be wanting that, this is a great time to invite them uh, because we're going to be putting out in front of everyone every week, this is what it means to be renewed. This is what it looks like. This is how you can find it. And so why not invite them? So let's dig in now. Um, what we're going to see as we look at the book of Ephesians, uh, which really is a letter to the church in Ephesus, uh, you can really sum it up like this. Here's, the, here's a, a very broad stroke summary of the book. A renewed person writes to a renewed people so they can live in unity to fulfill a renewed purpose. I'll say it again because I see a couple of you writing really fast. A renewed person writes to a renewed people 
so they can live in unity to fulfill a renewed purpose. So a renewed person, a renewed people, and a renewed purpose. And in a sense, that's the whole book. Um, and those actually, those are our three points for today as well, uh, as we look at these first two verses. So let's talk about this renewed person. Let me read the whole text again, because it's so short. Uh, here we go. Uh, Ephesians chapter one, verse one. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, it's only two verses, but there's a lot in there. Uh, and uh, it starts by introducing us to the author of the letters, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Now, you have to understand that uh, Paul did not sort of come out of the womb as a Christian. He wasn't born into a Christian family. He didn't come out as an apostle, just ready to go, all cooked and ready to, to hit the scene. That's not how he became to be who he is. The person who wrote this letter went through tremendous renewal to become an apostle of Jesus Christ. And so when you first meet him in the Bible, uh, not only is he not an apostle, he's not a Christian, and he hates Christians. With every fiber of his being, he hates them. And it says uh, here that he's an apostle by the will of God. And here's what that's saying. It's saying, apart from God himself intervening into Paul's life, there is absolutely no way Paul would have ever become a Christian, let alone an apostle of Jesus Christ. So it was only ever going to happen by the will of God. Um, and so if you read the book of Acts and some of the letters that Paul wrote, what you find out is he started out not as a Christian, but as a persecutor of Christians. He's actually present at the killing of the first Christian martyr. Uh, it says that he, um, the ones who were stoning this Christian, they were throwing stones at this guy named Stephen, who was a Christian. Um, and uh, it says that the people who were doing that, they took their coats off and they laid them at Paul's feet. Now, I don't know if that means that Paul at that point was like a mob boss and he's like, I don't get my hands dirty with this stuff. Uh, or if it was that he hadn't like, he hadn't reached the level of persecuting that he was allowed to throw stones. I'm not sure which it was, but either way, we meet Paul, when we meet him in the Bible, his life is dedicated to persecuting and killing Christians. He actually dedicated his life to that. And in Acts chapter nine, it says that Paul was, it says it this way, he was breathing out murderous threats against Christians. And he was, uh, in fact, uh, the way he's described is that he's entrepreneurial in his violence towards Christians. He actually goes to the high priest and says, could you give me a letter that will allow me to travel to Damascus so that I could go and catch some Christians and bring them back? He's an entrepreneur. He's looking for new fields. And so again, this is not the person as you're reading through the book of Acts that you expect to become a Christian, let alone an apostle of Jesus Christ. But here we are reading one of the 13 letters that he wrote in the New Testament to Christians to help them love God and love other people more. And he introduces himself here in the exact same way, almost every time, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. So how does that happen? How does a murderer of Christians, a persecutor of Christ, become a worshiper and apostle of Jesus Christ? Well, it can only be that he was renewed in some way. There was the old murderous Paul, and now there's the new loving Paul. Uh, in the book of Acts, uh, Luke, who wrote that, he records how it happens. In Acts chapter 9, it tells us that Paul was on his way from Jerusalem. He had that letter from that high priest to Damascus to go and capture and potentially kill some Christians. And as he's traveling along the road, Jesus Christ stops him dead in his tracks. Now, 
if you know your Bible, you know that when you get to Acts chapter 9, Jesus had already been crucified, buried, and resurrected from the dead. So the, the Jesus that Paul meets on the road is the resurrected Jesus Christ. You see, all these years, Paul has been persecuting Christians because they believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who died on the cross for their sins, was buried, and rose from the dead. This is the very reason he's hunting down Christians, because they believe that Jesus Christ rose from the dead and ascended into heaven. And Paul doesn't believe that. And that's the very reason he's going around capturing and wanting to kill Christians. And so imagine this, Paul, along the road to Damascus, he meets the risen Jesus Christ. And he's transformed. He's renewed. His life is dramatically transformed. He's writing this letter now as a renewed person. He's gone from hatred and violence and inequality and pride to become a person of love and peace and equality and humility. And so how does that happen? Well, his own testimony is that he met Jesus Christ, the Son of God who rose from the dead. He writes his testimony and says it over and over again. And that's what he says. He met Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who's risen from the dead. And so this encounter on the road from Jerusalem to, to Damascus, it convinced Paul that Jesus was alive. And that changed everything for him. Jesus' offer of forgiveness was real. Paul received it, and nothing would ever be the same again for him. The persecutor is now the preacher. The killer is now the evangelist. And so the first thing that we need to see as we start in this letter, when Paul introduces himself, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, the first thing that we need to see is that renewal really is possible for everyone. Like if it's possible, if a man like Paul can be renewed, if he can change from hater to lover, from murderer to life giver, from greedy to generous, from prideful to humble, then what makes you think that you couldn't change? What makes you think that you couldn't be renewed? The things you don't like about your life, those can change too. If, if, if that can change in Paul, it certainly can change in you because I'm not sure I know of any of you that are out trying to like entrepreneurially kill people. And so renewal is possible for everyone, even, even for you. And that's the first thing that we see in verse one. A renewed, a renewed person. Now, secondly, he writes to a renewed people. That's our second point. Look again at the second half of verse 1. It's, he's writing now to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. Um, now, that's not just fancy language. Uh, it's not like, uh, you know, my dearest buttercup gumdrop fancy pants. You know, it's not like a fancy greeting. Uh, nor is it a generic text. It's not to whom it may concern. It's not that either. Uh, by the way, has anyone ever gotten one of those to whom it may concern? Uh, I actually, I got one, um, well, actually a little less than a year ago, I got one from Buckingham Palace. Uh, it had, you know, on the envelope and everything, Buckingham Palace. And I opened it up and said, to whom it may concern. And I just thought to myself, if it really concerned me, don't you think that you might go to the trouble to find out my name, Queen Elizabeth II? <laughs> Well, Paul, it's, it's, this is not fancy language, it's not generic text. Paul is actually proclaiming something vitally important here. He's proclaiming to these people who he's writing to their central identity. And so to whom it may concern doesn't really proclaim anything about my identity except this letter might concern me. And so identity, it's something we find really important. Everyone wants to know who they are, right? 
But not only does everyone want to know who they are, today everyone wants to then display who they are once you've discovered it for the world to see. That's the whole reason, well, it's actually not the reason social media exists, but that's the reason we use it, is to display to everyone who we are. You know, I'm the person who eats these tacos. That's who I am. If you look, well, actually, I don't put anything on social media, but if I did, that's what you'd know about me. I'm the guy who eats the tacos. Now, the way we express this, uh, this wanting to know who I am, it, it kind of goes something like this. Uh, these are phrases that you might hear pretty regularly. I'm just learning to be true to myself. I don't need to have anyone else validate me or my decisions. I'm just being my authentic self. Have you heard this? And we discover that authentic self then by looking in, by asking, what are my deepest desires? What's really deep down in there? What are my strongest longings? Because if I can discover that, then I've discovered my true identity. Have you heard that? In a sense, well, in a sense, that is right. You can look inside to find your identity because each and every person is made in the image of God. And so in a sense, yeah, yeah, you can. You can look in to try and find that. But here's the thing. That image was tainted, it was broken, it was weakened because of sin. And so looking in means you'll only ever find a tainted, broken, weakened identity. You'll find desires that aren't altruistic. So you'll, you'll do good things, but you'll find that actually you were doing them because it benefited you in some way. You'll find longings that might even diminish someone else's view of their authentic self. And so what does Paul do to keep these early Christians from looking in to find their truest self? He proclaims an identity that comes from the outside. A new identity that you can take into your life, that you actually, you, you ad adopt it into your life. And so look at where their identity comes from. He says, he, he titles uh, to them, he says, to God's holy people. Now, how does someone become holy? And we tend to think you become holy by building up immense self-control. Through my self-control, through my willpower, I get myself to stop doing all sorts of things and I get myself to start doing all these other things and the more that I can do that, the more I can control myself, the more holy I can become. And so we tend to think that we make ourselves holy, but that's actually not how Christianity works. That's not how a person is renewed in Christianity. You see, doing that, that's still from the inside out, isn't it? Like I'm going into find the strength to become holy. And that's what every other major religion and every self-help book that you can find will tell you, that becoming holy or being a renewed person is from the inside out. You just look in and eventually you'll find it and then you'll be this renewed holy person. But not Christianity. Christianity actually says renewal can only come from the outside in. Instead of looking for our, our identity to find our most authentic and truest self, looking in to find it, we can look up and receive a new one. That's at the center of the Christian faith. And let me just show you very briefly from a verse we're going to look at in more detail next week in verse 4. Um, just a couple of verses down, it says this. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. Now, there's a whole thing in there we're going to get into next week about what it means that God chose us. But what I want you to see from this is that Christianity means that God comes to us to make us holy. In other words, God comes to us to renew us. And so this renewed person comes from the outside in. The identity comes from the outside. It's something that God gives you. 
And so the way that renewal works is it comes from the out, it comes from the outside, it comes from above. We don't get renewed by looking in, we get renewed by looking up. And so if you've been searching for renewal, if you've been working hard at like a change project, after change project, after change project in your life, or in the neighborhood, or in the city, or in the country, and you've, you've attached yourself to a particular cause, whatever it is, what the Christian gospel says is you'll never actually be renewed that way. You'll keep striving and striving and striving, but you'll never experience complete renewal if you keep looking in to find it. And so instead, we need to look up. Now, we're going to get into this in a few weeks, but when you get to Ephesians chapter 2, it tells us why looking in always fails. In Ephesians chapter 2, it actually tells us that on the inside, we're already dead. There's nothing new in there. On the inside, our deepest desires are actually to gratify the cravings of our flesh, not to be renewed, not to bring renewal, but actually to self-gratification. That's what's inside. That if we looked all the way in, we'd find only brokenness. And what Ephesians 2 tells us is that because of that, we've rejected God. We've actually turned our backs on him. We've turned away from him. But then chapter 2, verse 4 says this, that in spite of our rejection of God, it says this, uh, chapter 2, verse 4, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. Now here's what this is saying, that when Jesus Christ died on the cross, he was saving you. He was taking on all the brokenness, all of the weakness, all the sin that you so desperately want to throw off that if you looked deep enough inside, that's what you'd find. He died to save you from that. And because he rose from the dead, it means that you can be renewed. So the deadness that is inside of you can be brought to life. And so a Christian is someone who's taken on, taken into their life this new identity as, as one who is God's holy person as one who, it says, now is in Christ Jesus. Now, this is what Ephesians chapters 1, 2, and 3 are all about. Paul takes a deep dive into this new identity of a person who is renewed in Christ Jesus. Uh, And we're going to be digging into that over the next few weeks. But remember, remember how we also like to display our identity, right? We we not only want to look in to find it, but we also want to put it on display so that the world can know who this new person is. Well, Paul talks about that too. Notice he calls them God's holy people in Ephesus. He hasn't forgotten that they're still living in a specific time and place. And chapters 4, 5, and 6 of Ephesians will be about how to put their identity on display for the world to see. They're all about how a renewed person brings renewal into the world with them, into their church, into their homes, into their workplaces, into their neighborhood, into their city, into the most broken places around the world. So where are we? Well, first, renewal is possible for everyone. Second, renewal comes by receiving a new identity from the outside as God makes you a holy person. And now thirdly, this is a letter from a renewed person to a renewed people so that they can live in unity to fulfill a renewed purpose. So let's look at that. Um, I don't know if you noticed um, what seems like some sort of a, I guess it's kind of like wonky geography that Paul has in this letter. He says, uh, to God's holy people in Ephesus, to those who are in Christ Jesus. It's kind of, those two, it seems kind of mutually exclusive. You're either in one place, like you can't be in two at once. 
Um, so what's that about? Um, well, let me try and illustrate that for you. Um, when we moved over um, to the UK, um, I had uh, I traveled there with my passport uh, that says I am an American citizen. That is my that's my home. That's where I'm from, um, and that's my home. But also in my passport was a visa that said I'm also allowed to live in this other place. And so I had two homes, uh, two places. I had my home home, where I'm from, and I had my home where I'm living, two places. Um, and so I always felt with that that I had a sort of dual responsibility. And so I needed to follow all the, the laws, the rules, the regulations of the country that I was living in and make sure that I obeyed that and was a good citizen of that place. But at this very same time, I was always living as a representative of my own country which meant that I was always distinct. I always stood out and everyone always wanted to know what do Americans think about this? And they always wanted to talk about what was happening in American politics. And so I was always a representative of my country in this other place. And I always stood out. Let me even illustrate that a bit more for you. When we first got there, uh, almost everywhere I went, I'd walk into a shop or I would meet someone and inevitably someone would say to me, oh, I love your accent. I'm like, what accent? You have the accent. I don't have an accent. You have one. And that had to happen enough where I realized, no, I am the one with the accent. I'm the one who talks differently. I'm the one who talks funny. Uh, and this is what Paul is getting at when he says they're both in Ephesus and in Christ Jesus. That we're sort of living in this dual reality. Like I have a, my home home is in Christ but where I'm living is in Ephesus. And so I'm trying to make sure that I live as one who's a citizen of my true home in this other place where I am. I'm distinct in this world and I'm a representative in this world of that other place. That word in, by the way, it should sound familiar to most of you because that's the very thing we talked about when we looked at John 15 over the last three weeks. And it's going to come up a lot in Ephesians, that when Paul means, uh, what he means when he says that we're in Christ Jesus is the very same thing that Jesus meant when he says, you are in me and I am in you. He's talking about uh, being in Christ, it means to be united in him, to be united with him, that all that is his is mine, all that is mine is his. His life, his love, his righteousness, it flows then into my life. And so what does it mean? Well, it means that they actually have this renewed purpose. And in verse 2, we get a hint. It's only a hint, but we get a hint of that renewed purpose. Look at it again, verse 2. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You see that? The grace and peace, it flows from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It flows from God the Father and Jesus Christ into us through our union with Christ. In other words, renewal flows into our lives from the outside. There's not an internal source that we find and dig it up. But renewal flows into our lives from the outside. Now remember, Paul doesn't just say that they're in Christ Jesus. He says that they're God's holy people in Ephesus, which means their physical geography is it's not inconsequential. Because he could have just written this to God's holy people, those who are in Christ. He could have done that. But he doesn't. Their geography is not inconsequential in this. It's actually pretty important to this. Here's what I think this is getting at. Renewal is meant to flow into them from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ through the work of the Holy Spirit 
which we'll talk about the work of the Holy Spirit next week. Uh, and then out of them into their city. And so it's like this multi-tiered fountain that we were talking about last week. Do you remember that? A fountain, uh, this, this fountain where the water flows out of the top tier and then it kind of fills a little basin. And then once enough flows into there, it overflows into the next tier that's a little bit wider and water pools up in there. And once there's enough in there, it flows into the next one down. It's this cascading fountain. That's the image here, where God's love cascades down from the Father to the Son through the Spirit into my life and into the lives of those around me. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you were to read all the way, by the way, to the very end of Ephesians, uh, do you know what happens at the end? Paul uses the same words, and he's, and he's saying like, hey, send grace and peace to these people. So what he's saying is it, it needs to flow from the Father, through the Son, through the Spirit, into your life, and through you into the lives of other people. And so you'll see as we read through this book that this cascading love, this renewal, it flows into my life as I'm renewed, and then I bring renewal to others. And that's my renewed purpose. My renewed purpose in life is for God's love to flow into my life and to pour through me into the lives of others. And so not only is renewal possible for everyone, it's possible for everyone to bring renewal to others. You see how that works? So renewal is possible for you. It flows from God's life into your life through your union with Jesus Christ. And it flows from your life into the lives of those around you. That's the renewed purpose. And so this is what we're going to see as we read through this book on Sunday mornings. We're going to get way more practical than we've gotten today as we read through this, especially when we get to the second half, because it's all practical in the second half. Um, but between now and a few weeks before Easter, we're going to be looking uh, at chapters 1 to 3, which are all about God's love cascading down to us as he renews us. Uh, Paul just talks over and over again about what that means and how God did that uh, into our lives. And then after Easter, uh, until a little bit before the summer, we're going to be looking into chapters 4, 5, and 6, which are all about God's love cascading down out of us into the lives of others. So the first half, God love, God's love to you. The second half, God's love through you to the lives of other people. Um, and so stick with us because this is really at the heart of what it means to be a renewed person and to have a renewed purpose in your life. And it's really at the heart of, of who we are and who we're going to be as a church, to be that kind of church uh, that both uh, holds to the historic doctrines of the Christian faith so that we can challenge the culture, but also uh, adapts to the culture so that we can bring this truth to them. Um, and so if you have friends who you know who are looking for and longing for renewal, this would be a great time to start inviting them along. This, this is the time. We're starting now. This is it, if there was ever a time. Um, and so if you have those friends who are, you know they're looking for renewal, this is the time. Um, and lastly, I want to encourage you that if, if you're looking for something from the Bible to read on your own right now, like why not take uh, some time this week or, or sometime over the next month and read through Ephesians. You can actually read through uh, the whole thing in, in under half an hour. Uh, six chapters, they're all pretty short. They're really dense. It's hard work. Uh, but you could read the whole thing uh, in under half an hour. Why not spend some time really digging into this for yourself so that God could pour his love into your heart as you read his word uh, and not just get it here on Sunday morning, but you have it all the time. Um, so that's what we're going to be doing. We're going to be digging into this book. Um, and so just inviting you to stick with us through that. And uh, I think God's going to do some really... Uh, really amazing things in our, in our own lives uh, and in and through our church as we do that. So why don't I pray to that end. Um, Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you that we have it to look into, that 
uh, we can see in it um, just how it is that you poured your love into our lives, um, what that really means. And I pray as we look at that over the next few weeks that all of us would be deeply encouraged and renewed by that truth. And then, Father, as we turn a corner after Easter and, and look at all the practical ways that your love is meant to pour through us, Father, please would you use that um, to help our church make a difference uh, in our community. And we ask you all this in Jesus' name. Amen.